Ahoy! My name is Tim Wright and I am not Carruthers. My name is Lloyd Shepard and I am not Davis. Welcome to the Rhythm of the Sands Adventure Club. That's very slick now, we're very slick now. Well, you used to say welcome, 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 didn't you? I know, but I have got fed up with that. Well, do you know, Scroobius Pip does it on his podcast. Does he? Welcome, welcome, welcome. I, and I can't work out if he stole it from you or you stole it from him. I stole it from some TV show. Okay. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I've definitely. I, oh, I've, hello, good evening, and welcome. No, but it's one of those titles. It's probably right. a very old TV show, given <laughs> given my cultural heritage. Nothing, nothing to do with why we're here. <laughs> welcome to the Riddle of the Sands Adventure Club podcast number twenty four. Twenty four, where we are discussing the book The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers. Yes, published in nineteen oh three. We think set in eighteen ninety eight. Yes. Uh, and a book that is curiously specific about dates and locations. Curiously specific about dates and locations, by which we mean somehow Erskine Childers has decided that he needs to put dates and locations into this book in a kind of almost real way. It's almost like a logbook, isn't it? Yes. He's very specific about tides, and but you've, you've caught him out a couple of times on tides. Don't get me started about tides. We're going to be back on tide tables <laughs> yeah, okay. quite soon, oh, actually. Good, on the good. 25th is quite significant. Quite Not today, luckily. Well, I won't bore you. train times I won't bore you with that train today. Today. <laughs> So the book is uh, about these two characters, Carruthers and Davis. They are sailing from uh, Flensburg in the very north of Germany. From the 26th of September. All the way down to Amsterdam on the 26th of October. No, Ostmahorn. Ostmahorn, big part. On the 26th of October. Um, we're currently at the 24th of October. We're near the end is nearly in sight. Yes, of discussing it day by day in these series of podcasts, with a view, of course, to then going out there and doing it. Going out there and doing it at the same time scale, reading yeah. the book out from the locations in the book, sharing some of our adventures, and then publishing, hopefully, oh. a new edition of The Riddle of the Sands with uh, our friends at Unbound. Now, there's been developments this week on that because... Finally. Finally, we've, we've finally, we've, fin- we've been quite busy with other things. Yeah, well, um, probably our definitions of busy might not be quite the same as genuinely busy people's yeah, definition of yes. busy. But we've now finally put together a, a work in progress draft of the ebook that we're going to do. We obviously we want to do a print book as well, but the idea is to take the text of Erskine Childers' novel, break it down by date rather than by chapter, and then actually replay those events in modern Germany. Yes, use, use an old book as your guide, basically. Yeah. A work of fiction work of as fiction. your guide. To go to, a, re- to a, re- a real adventure. Yeah. And we went out there last year on October the 2nd. Uh, we have produced a, an e-book of that day. We saw, it hasn't gone through the unbound editorial process or the yeah, unbound yeah, whatever. process. Mm. So it's a work in progress. The reason we're doing that is, first of all, to show people what we're about. Yeah. Because sometimes people don't quite understand. <laughs> sometimes we don't quite understand. No, no, we don't know um, what we're doing. But the other, the other reason is to get some feedback from, from people who have pledged already, who might want to pledge, and say, oh, that's really good, but why don't you do this? Or I don't mm. get that at all. Or you know, so, so go and have a look at riddleofthesands.net. There's a blog post there that gives you an idea, but if you want to see the full chapter... You have to pledge your support. Pledge your support to Unbound at unbound.co.uk. Yeah. Um, and and uh, then you there you'll find it. A whole range the, of different... In the shed, what they call the shed. The, the writer's so if shed. You, if you pledge to Unbound, so you set up an account on Unbound and pledge anything from £15 upwards, and you get all sorts of extra goodies the more you pledge. If you pledge on there, then they set up an account on Unbound, and once you've set up the account, you can get into the shed for Rid of the Sands Adventure Club and see the full sample chapter. Yeah, and tell a, us what you think. We put a couple of tasters of it on the on the blog for everyone to have a look at. The podcasts are free, the blog posts are free, but to produce the book we need... Monies. Uh, some money, some cash. Yeah. That's a, a long... That's the plug. A, a long introduction, a long plug. Uh, we're on October the 24th. Yes, our, we Our hero is temporarily separated. Well, and also, I should have done something today, which I only do every three or four days, which is shave. Okay. Did you not realise that? The first thing he says, when we go to the 24th, he says, 
at 8.28 on the following morning, which will be... Because he's in Amsterdam, we should say. Carruthers is currently yes. in Amsterdam. Yeah, he's the in luxury a hotel. He's at a luxury hotel with, with toilets in the basement. <laughs> you may still, remember. You're still on a little boat. Yeah. At 8.28 on the following morning, with a novel chilliness about the upper lip. All right, because he had a shave. Well, he never mentioned he had a moustache before. Oh. He's never mentioned that before. He's never mentioned that before, no. That, well, that, so just... now we know that, I, that basically I should be sporting moustache throughout the whole thing until the 24th of October when I need to shave it off. Okay. Because then I'm in disguise. So I was sitting in a third-class carriage bound for Germany and dressed as a young seaman in a pea jacket, peaked cap and comforter. What's a comforter? I think a comforter's like a snood or something, isn't it? Like a sort of scarfy thing a snood I can imagine Carruthers wearing a snood maybe he's wearing one of Isn't those kind of Palestinian scarves that you wore at university yeah when you're in your year you come back from your year off yeah. Solidarity. yeah 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 that's right yeah I've been <laughs> interrailing and then I went to yeah. uh, when I worked in a kibbutz I went in a kibbutz <laughs> so it changed my life man well I, I've looked at train times oh thank god yeah so, so Carruthers is in Amsterdam and yeah. he has, he's decided to go back to Norden so Childers has him leaving Amsterdam at 8.28am now yes. my, my Bradshaw Yep. Guide to Continental Railways from 1888 doesn't have an 8:28 a.m. train from Amsterdam. It does have a 7:30. Okay. So, well, so, so there's either t- they changed the time of <laughs> the trains in the intervening ten years, well, or, which is perfectly possible yeah, because the world was changing rapidly at that point, was, wasn't it? it? So it's perfectly possible that this changed. Yeah. The other thing, as we have said before, is that oh, actually, I, I, I went to the science museum yesterday, okay, and where my wife took an extreme interest in undersea cabling. I have to tell you. Well, there, somebody, tele- telegraphy, somebody, the birth of telegraphy. Somebody put up an amazing map yesterday of all the undersea cables. Yeah, 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 yeah. Showing all, I know all about I'm all over that. What the names right. are. Well, you, you did the... Uh, I've worked at the Science Museum, so yeah. I, know, I know a little bit about that. Yeah. And there's a very, very good uh, book called Tubes, I recommend yeah. to you, which is a description which tells you about all the oh, okay. stuff. It also made me realise, particularly with railways, that once they'd started having a telegraph, they had to decide that everybody in the country, in the UK, was going to have to run on London time. But they've got three clocks in the Science Museum where they say, well, this is what Bristol time would have been and this is what Cornwall time would have been. And it's a few minutes and they're going round and you see the difference. And it took a while for everybody to decide to agree. So when was this? So now the international timeline arrangement wasn't agreed until the 1880s. The first international symposium. There's a photograph of all these white blokes agreeing the international timelines. But it's only... 10, 15 years before this trip. Okay. So so news wouldn't have filtered out everywhere. So the fact that I'm worrying about an hour's difference between the train, <laughs> train, train time time. That's what I'm probably, telling you. It's, it's all a waste of time. Really awesome. It's all a waste of time. Actually, I'm wondering now, though, whether the, or actually, what time... What time zone? Might have been on, it might have been on England time. Yeah. In which case, it would be 8.30. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. Ah, you see? What an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> it must be local time. We've got to get uh, Carruthers back from... And we've got to get back from Amsterdam to Aizen's. Yes, I'm going to tell you a bit about Aizen's in okay, a minute, but don't but, let me interrupt uh, so, you. So in the book, he gets the train, he, he, he retraces his steps in the previous day, so he gets the 7.30 train from Amsterdam. That gets him into Reiner, yeah. the junction, and we've heard about that at 1.22pm, uh, so it's quite a long way. That's quite slow, isn't it? Um, and then there's only a five-minute changeover, which, if you've been travelling with me, you know would, would cause me anxiety, mm. because the train from Reiner north leaves at 1.27. Yes. And gets into Emden... At 5.25. Emden, yes. Leaves Emden at 5.48. From Reiner to Emden, we descended the Valley of the Ems. Exactly. So the Emden Railway, as we discussed last week, runs along the, the Ems. I'm with you. Uh, according to Bradshaw, you can get the train from Emden all the way to Aizen's without changing trains. In the book, he talks about waiting half an hour at Norden. 
this being the junction of raisins, I had to wait three quarters, three quarters of, an, of hour, an hour. Three quarters of an hour. Which he's now saying, I think at that point, I'm, I've got this down as 7.45. Yeah, we passed Norden at 7. Yes. According to Bradshaw, again, he gets to Aisins at 10 past 9, which is almost exactly the same as it is in the book. Yeah, that's not which bad. Which is pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He um, says, it, yeah, just upon 9 o'clock, yeah. the train drew up just upon 9 o'clock at my destination. So there you are. So, so, broadly, so it does roughly match. It does really tally. There is a problem, though, isn't there? There is a problem, a modern problem, yeah. in that the, there's no longer a railway from Emden to Aisins. The railway that was built was only sort of 20 years old by the time that uh, the book is set. Yeah. The, the the train line now ends at Norden. Oh, does it? I thought there was one to Dornham. Well, you can get a train, a scheduled train, yes. from Emden to Norden. That's on the yes. railway network. There is still a, a tourist line from Norden to Dornham. Yes, there's, there only, is a train line. Only runs in the summer. Oh, there are occasional. So in October, so it's a bit like the sort of Bluebell Railway or the, or yeah, the okay. uh, Festiniog Railway. Or whatever. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a tourist line. Yeah. So there are occasional trains running through the winter. So we might be able to get a train from Norden to Dornham, which is kind of halfway between yeah. uh, Norden and Aisins. But then Dornham to Aisins. Dornham to Aisins. I think the train track is still uh, the. Uh, uh, it's a cycle path now. You can see. You can see it on Google Maps. So we reckon we can get our bikes. So we can down get there. our bikes off the train, uh, either at Norden or Dornham. Um, and then cycle the rest what of the way. What a palaver. Yeah, it is a bit of a palaver. Okay. I, found I wonder why they just chopped up that one bit. It just wasn't being used, I don't think. I mean, I think it was... It Nobody was, wanted to go to Aisins. Well, again, a bit, I suppose maybe a bit like we were discussing about war and everything, is that cars, you know, cars came along. Yeah, and, uh, why bother? So actually, when this, was a, when this was a spa resort, as we've talked about, you yeah. needed to get people to yeah. the ferry at Norden. They only closed it in like the, in the 1980s. But it means it's doable, though, doesn't it? It, it means doable. I can get back from my luxury stay in Amsterdam and be in Aisins to meet you. Well, I didn't look up the modern timetables last time because I thought we were sick of our timetables. But last time we looked up, the train was much faster. faster. So well, then we've got get, plenty of time to do the, time the last the, cycling. So I reckon we can still get to Aisins for nine o'clock yes, in the evening. Not a problem, but because uh, we'll get not to a problem more quickly. Okay, so we're at Aisins. So we're at Aisins. Like so Shall I tell you a little bit about Aisins? Go on. Bear Bydecker said Aisins is a town of three and a half thousand inhabitants mm. the center of a rich agricultural district fine spire what's a bidecker i don't even know what that is bidecker's guides so they were they were the famous tourist guides in the oh, okay. they were the, they were the sort of i was gonna say the lonely planet of their day but probably the lonely planet isn't the lonely planet of the day no, anymore no. they were the trip advisor they're the trip advisor of the 19th century ah good okay yeah. but i'm glad you made that link yeah. because i'm going to mention trip advisor oh, very good okay so now Aisins. Can I tell you that, that, that Aidens is still a town of about three and a half yeah, thousand. Yeah, 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 but it's yeah. not much more. Yeah. And it's still a rich agricultural district and it has a fine spire. Okay. And that's about that's it. That's about it. Not much has changed. <laughs> so it hasn't changed not very much. much. Changed. When, I, when we said we were going to talk about Ben Cecil, I said, well, there's nothing much to say about Ben Cecil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Aidens and Ben Cecil are now considered to be sort of one and the same place, Well, they're really. part of the same... Um, resorts basically yeah, they yeah. are a holiday resort and it's, yeah. it's tourism or agriculture that's yeah. it and yeah, Aisins yeah. is basically a feeder town for people who want to go on holiday in Langeoog yeah. and Aisins is a sort of got, got a few cheap hotels okay. if you don't fancy actually camping or just yeah. going out to the well, island be me. I don't fancy camping so that Aisins not, not the most inspiring place apart from the spire I'd say <laughs> nice nice link yeah. before I go into some detail on this uninteresting place Carruthers <laughs> I have to say, selected the very humblest guest house I could discover. I laid down my bundle and called for beer, bread, and verse. Now he, Tim has laid out <laughs> some <laughs> bread and verse, and here we are. That's been smelling delicious, actually. Well, there you go, you mate. Fried off, you know, now you need to do that close to the camera. I want you to try, 
Try so the this, verse. This is the verse. I've got your pickles there, and I've got you some rye bread. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> it's actually delicious. It's really good. That is nice. that is knack verse. You know, we said that no, the local can... the local sausage would be knack versed. We we researched it in a previous podcast. No, you cut this in rather an interesting way. Well, that's a way to slice it so you can fry it. You've you've cut, I've, never, I've never seen sausage cooked like that before. Have you not? Is that how you eat them in Norfolk? Yeah, well, you get a good so old Tim has, Tim you get a good them, old crisp fryer. Tim has then. got them lengthways. Yeah, so they're slices. Nice and thin. Yeah, so it's a bit like spam. It's very nice. Fried spam. Do you ever have fried spam in your youth? Yeah, spam fritters. Fantastic. Well, it's a bit it's like very that. Very nice. It's like second breakfast. No, no. By the way, on that plate also is the last slice of lunch tongue. I'm going to try a bit of lunch tongue. That's the stuff that you have to eat when you row to Mehmet. Oh, you have whiskey and lunch whiskey tongue. Whiskey and lunch tongue. So try the lunch tongue. What are you thinking of that? That's in, there's only one slice left because I think that's delicious. That's very nice. Yeah. Yes, this is a vast improvement on mm. the cheese mm. from earlier podcasts. That's what fuels the row to Mehmet. Asins. Yeah. Let me clear my... Well, I found... The humblest guest house I could discover, TripAdvisor. <laughs> Go on. You found it on TripAdvisor? Well, I, yeah, of course, I went to TripAdvisor, and, which is the bi-decker of, its, the, bi-decker uh, of the modern bi-decker, yeah, yeah. and looked for the humblest guest house in Azens. Isn't that what you do? Well, I'm trying to imagine you, you typing in the search term, the humblest guest house in Azens. Yeah! <laughs> and this is what I got. A little pop-up This is what there. I got. The Wheatings Hotel. It's right on the Market Square. Wheatings. It's got a lovely, lovely Gothic script. As you'd expect. And I like the, the reviews. Of, they're all in German. This one says, Very friendly and courteous staff. Clean room. Super location for dog's veranda. Ship's dog could come along. Oh. Gardens highly recommended. It also has a whirlpool and sauna. No additional fees for dogs. Now, we have to talk about this, though, because he doesn't actually stay the night in... No, he's just hanging out. He has a restaurant. He has a restaurant. He has a quick beer, and then he goes off uh, yeah, yeah. yomping around. Well, and he yeah. thinks he's going to come back, but he doesn't. Located in the small but attractive market square of Azens, yeah. our room very reminiscent of the 70s. I'm presuming the 1970s, not the 1870s. Well, we don't know. Topped with a wicker table and two wicker chairs. It sounds dated, small, humble. Do you not think? Ever so humble. There was one particular thing someone was complaining about. The oh. lack of soap. You have to bring your own They're soap. They're always on TripAdvisor. <laughs> you must bring your own soap. People, people say... <laughs> Somebody looked at me in a funny way. Three stars. I think there was some evidence of mice as well or something. Striking the friendly and professional staff... This is a translation of Germany. Striking the friendly and professional staff. And if others write about dead mice, then the only evidence of the successful work of a vast, serene white cat. Some people have been about dead mice. A vast, <laughs> serene white cat. That's very poetic. Yes. I've been expecting you, Mr. Bond. Is that Goethe staying the night? No, it's Blofeld, clearly. <laughs> so I think it sounds right, doesn't it? I left my secret rocket ship in the basement. There was no problem. <laughs> in the humblest guest house in Asens. No volcanoes near here. <laughs> so uh, we should we, br- briefly set up why, could... actually, why he's in Asens. We haven't really done that yet. He started thinking about canals, hasn't he? Yes, well, he started, he's realised that Asens is the hub. He's realised that Asens... There's, there's of the a, railway network as much as anything the else. The railway network. He goes over a canal on the railway. And he starts thinking about, well, what, what are all these canals doing? He does think about that. It's also about Tide, because he's overheard a conversation in Mehmet. That's right. About being, a meeting up at night. That's right. And because the tide is going to be high. And he has, so he's looked at his tide tables and made a decision as to where the tide would be right for their time of meeting. So he talks about Benzacil, which is obviously just, yeah. just up from just north of it. And then he's, he's, they've all got to get off the train. He's got a hunch that they're all going to have to 
get on trains. Yes. Burma's yes. going to have to come back from Bremen. Yes, yes. Von Brun is going to have to come back the from Norwich. And the idea that, but it's, it's sort of the connecting point for the two, the, the, where they could possibly meet yeah. each other at yeah, that yeah. time. So that's why he's there. He is a expert in rail timetables and tides. Transport interactions. <laughs> Transport interactions. He's your kind of guy, Quite isn't kind he? Of guy. Yeah. Carruthers suddenly becomes more interesting. Yeah. Well, there's no other reason to go to Aizen, so that's why he's there. I've got two other things to say about Aizen. Yeah. One is, nothing's happened there since the Middle Ages, frankly. Oh, it's a bit rude about it. I'm sure the burgers of Aizen's would find that. No, so. I think they'd probably... Nothing's happened since the Middle Ages. I think the they'd probably ages. agree. There's been some quite big floods since the Middle Ages. Oh, uh, OK. But, well, it was the centre of... You know, we talked about piracy before. Yeah. It was the capital of pirates. Was it? Yeah. There's this guy called Junker Balthazar. What a fantastic name. <laughs> and they've got a statue of him in Aizen's. Junker Balthazar. Yeah. And he was a notorious... Frisian pirate. Frisian pirate. Aizen's was his capital, his okay. castle. He built a castle in Aizen's. Did you look at all at the um, the geology of Aizen's? <sighs> why would, I, I'll ask, I'll, I'll why you, would you do that? I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, so Junkers Balsam, you go yeah. and see the statue. Yeah. So, Gar, there's pirates there. <laughs> don't do Gar. <laughs> Please don't do Gar. And then I'm going to leave you with a little bit of this, a musical interlude. Dutchman, a great sailing opera. Yeah. Can you hear the waves, the storms? Yeah, we can, yeah. What's this got to do with Aizen's? I've got no idea, what you tell me. I'll tell you what it's got to do with it. <laughs> I'll tell you what it's got to do with Aizen's. Theodore Thomas. Okay. Theodore Thomas was born in Aizen's. Yeah. Do you know who he is? No, no He's idea. actually rather a famous person actually, in America. He's actually called Teddy Thomas. Teddy Thomas. Yeah, he yeah. is. Famous person in America. A personal friend of Wagner's. He introduced Wagner to the Americans. He's basically a very famous violinist, apparently a fantastic violinist. Okay. And a conductor. Yeah. Born in Aizen's. Right. Moved to America like a lot of Germans did in this period. I think yeah. he went in the 1840s, 1850s. Started travelling as a lead violinist, going with touring orchestras around America. The yeah. first touring orchestras. Yeah ever in America, introducing yeah. them to classical music, yeah. and particularly German classical music, which was his thing, yeah. and became so famous that composers would get him to conduct the premiere, the American premiere of their works, and particularly Wagner, Flying Dutchman. He conducted the premiere of the Flying Dutchman yeah, in America. Yeah, he then became the first music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. What I did find quite interesting was that he, he was so obsessed with touring and going out and outreach and yeah. stuff, he is said to be the person who inspired school orchestras. So really? all those terrible school orchestras, right. there weren't any before him, that he'd come to town and then he'd persuade the local school, you should start an orchestra, and people would be inspired to take up instruments. So, so all Gareth, those... The all, Gareth Malone of the 19th century. Well, he is responsible for is us as parents sitting choir? through ghastly renditions of... Well, I was in one of those terrible school orchestras. Second violin. Oh. But really, horrendous, aren't they? Is it, has anyone ever so. been to a really good school orchestra concert? No, but people have to start somewhere, don't they? 
Uh, yeah, they say that about lots of things. They like writing, don't they? You have to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 yeah people have to sit, start somewhere. People have to sit and listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Clements, Amherst County Primary School. Turn away now. Anyway, there's a statue of him in Chicago. In Chicago, there's a statue. Yeah, he died in 1905. So in 1903 or 89, he's in his pomp. So that is a man of Azens. Very good. And so when they were rocking into town, when Carlos was rocking town, there's a man from Azens playing Wagner across the Atlantic. Very good. How do you like that? So Theodore Thomas and Junker Balthazar. Yeah, those are the two. They're the two men from Azens. Fantastic. I couldn't find any women from Azens. I wish I could. So we were going to talk about canals at this point. Because canals canals feature... So yeah. after his after his beer and his his worst, you better first, be interested. I feel the worst. <laughs> he goes on a bit of a yomp in the in the night time. He does. Yomp. He does. And he starts wandering around all mm. these places and noticing all these canals that are everywhere through the landscape. No, he just goes to the Benzatif. He doesn't wander around all of them. No, he just he, walks down the Benzatif. He, he he walks about a mile up north on the north side, and then he goes three miles by the side of the canal till he passed midnight so actually yeah. we're into the 25th yeah, yeah and he's pondering and he's looking and he Sorry. finds a kind of manufacturing facility timber yard timber yard he finds a timber yard for lodging free and accessible I boarded one of the empty barges in the backwater yeah. barges will be significant barges are significant I think we'll talk about them next time yeah, we'll talk about the and surveyed my quarters for the night yes oh look he says it. this brought back memories he says here, under the stern deck was stored a massive roll of tarpaulin. Yeah. Now, many years ago, <laughs> I took my wife out for uh, lunch at Christmas time. When we were doing Christmas shopping, and I mm. thought, as a treat, I'll take her to a fancy restaurant. I went somewhere on Charlotte Street, I seem to remember. And sitting next to us was Peter Sissons, the newsreader, <laughs> and his wife, obviously doing the same thing. Yeah. Now, obviously, you don't want to listen in to other no, people's conversations. Yeah, you wait, wait, but when you've got someone famous next to you... Does he not talk but, really loudly? Well, he's got a very distinctive, <laughs> loud voice. But the only thing he said really loudly, that I still in me today, and every time I see him on the telly, he's not on the telly anymore, yeah. I think he's a bit old now, is he just said, he raised his voice to say, a large roll of tarpaulin, and I thought it was going to be a news announcement. <laughs> It sounded just like a news announcement. A large roll of tarpaulin. He came and spoke. And I was like, yes, yes, and what? And so any time he came on the telly, and and every time I see that phrase, a massive roll of tarpaulin, I think of Peter Sissons. He's about to tell me some terrible news. He came on Tarpaulin-related news. spoke at our school. I was at school. Got a great voice, I think. And uh, there was a very, very rebellious uh, uh, young woman in my my year at school who was uh, notoriously sort of, you know, fight the power mm. and he gave this whole speech and then she stood up and then they had questions again she stood up and said Mr Sissons can you give us one single reason why we should believe a single word you say <laughs> and he said a large roll of tarpaulin <laughs> anyway sorry about that so he no, finds no. this barge and he starts yes. looking at this this map yes well, by match line he starts thinking about these the seals the seven seals the seven seals and the, the seals the seals being these places where the Hilgen Rieder seal water goes out Greet seal Carolinen seal yes he goes on about the seals and, says it, and he starts trying to puzzle out what mm. connects the seals with the islands mm. and then he starts about the canal he starts thinking about the Emden to Wilhelmshaven Canal which runs yes, right across. across the bottom of the peninsula yeah. so that's cut through yeah and he starts wondering, I wonder if maybe this isn't about defending Germany from attack at all. No, and why would you be wanting to build loads of barges and put them across a network of canals? So Unpowered barges. I read a fa- I've been reading a fantastic book mm-hmm. called The Conquest of Nature 
Water, Landscape and the Making of Modern Germany. Of course you have. By David Blackburn. <laughs> of course um, you've been reading that. And it's really, really interesting. Is right? it? No, Is it? Because it completely made me realise that we've been thinking about the landscape all wrong. Come on then. Because we're British. Yeah. We think about landscape in a completely different way to the Germans. Right. The thesis of this book, basically, is that the German landscape that we see today is essentially a created landscape. Yes. It was, it was built... And it started it. to be built by Frederick the Great. It started to be built by the Prussians. Right. And I don't fully understand this, and I'm not finished reading the book yet, and I've only been skim reading it. The Great Northern Plain. Do you know about the Great Northern Plain? No. So, pretty <laughs> well, much... From, I haven't read this book. <laughs> pretty much from the East Frisians in the east, all the way through Germany, right out to Poland and Lithuania. Oh, OK. It's a plain. Oh. It's flat. Yes, OK. It's flat. And the reason it's that flat... That I can picture. The reason it's flat is because that's where the ice... Stopped. Pack stopped. Yes, okay. the ice age, and it sat there. I get and that. It's all flat out. Yeah. So in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, it was basically marshland. Anything yep. near a river was marshland. Malarial, wet. Mm. The Prussians come along and go, no, 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 no. We can't. We can't have this. We need. To, we need to turn this marshland into usable land. Yeah. And they started with the Oder in the in the east, the Oderbrucke. Okay. okay. Which they basically drained. And they drained it by building canals and turned this marshy. Into polder. Area. Into polder, exactly. It's a very, very valuable farmland. Yeah. Basically, that idea that Germany has got is part of the sort of national national consciousness that you we, you have to... Canals. Of, canals. But they're not canals in the way we think of canals. They're not, they're not canals for getting coal from one place to another. They're canals for draining the land. Now, the reason I asked you about... Um, oh, I see. ...the geology okay. of Azens is because, basically, the East Frisians have got three... Bits of geology. Yeah. They've got different economies running on them. Yeah. This is all from this book. A bit round the sea, where the polders are, where it was drained, you know, with with, with dikes and all this kind of stuff. Mm. That's hugely valuable farmland. Yes. Right? Very wealthy. Well, it, but also Asians very, agricultural, that's what they say. very subject to flooding. Yeah. And yeah. The next level up from there is what's called the geist. Oh, the German yeah. word that's actually uh, used a lot in there, which is kind of this sandy, sedimentary... It's not very good for growing crops on, but you can grow grass on it. And, and, okay. and, and then the next one on is the moor. So the moor the goes moor. up. Now, the thing about the moor is... So I know, so you know what fen colonies are? Do you know what fen colonies are? Look, I'm from Norfolk, mate. Well, so I, I, I didn't know anything about fen colonies. So the idea is, with a moorland in yeah. this kind of landscape, you drain the water out of it into a canal, Yes. and that's how you get peat. Yes. By draining the water. I didn't know any of this. Well, if you drive, if you ever drove from Cambridge to Kings Lynn, yeah, or yeah. walk from Cambridge to Kings Lynn, yeah. which I keep telling you we ought to do, yeah. that that's whole the of that is that's, that. that's it. Yeah. So it's, it's all, it's, these are called fen colonies. Now, yeah. That's what East Frisia was. It was farmland around the edges, and then inland, these fen colonies. Yeah, yeah. So there's actually, if we're talking about Wagner, there's a, the, the, the biggest fen colony in the East Frisia is Wagner's fen. Really? Yeah, it's called Wagner's fen. Good connection. So all these canals. They're just there for draining the map, water. They're, they're not drainage. for transport. They're drainage. They're drains. They're drainage. Well, they have other words for it. I noticed that a lot of them are called chutes. They're called which is why we have seals, right? This yeah, is a, yeah. It's for letting the water out. Yeah. And I, I hadn't got my head around this. We did talk about that a little bit before. And I wonder whether Childers quite got his head around this, actually. No, that's, Whether he yeah. thought of canals as being something that got, you got you from He didn't understand it. I did quite a lot of looking around at... Lots of pictures of the canals, lots of places. Mm. I didn't find. I had. A, I got. I found a video of a guy who actually uh, canoed around the. Um, you got canals. a video of a man canoeing. And ran, a man canoeing with a with a GoPro on the front of his. Yeah. Honey, which I'll put up on the blog, but it's got some very odd music on it. Oh God! Play, play, play the music. Come on. So rund um Hauptgast, ein Paddeltour in Ostfriesland. On his own, presumably. 
Yes, I don't think he. T- I don't think he was like. Was it John Fairfax taking his girlfriend? So we're seeing some wind farms. Oh wow! So there's, there's seven minutes of this. Start our Neuen Dilft. Oh my goodness! And he also put pictures up. So he goes around. He goes yeah, all yeah. the way around. Nowhere in any of these pictures is there another vessel. There are no boats or vessels anywhere in these pictures. No, I know you've got you've got no, some different. So look. Yeah, yeah, I know, but yeah. But he's... Look, yes, but this man... Benzatif, nothing. This man is a Benz- loner. He's Benzatif, no, nothing. He, he clearly paddles away from it. Benzatif, First sign nothing. of another human being, he paddles as far as they, he can the other way. They even fish in it. Anglerboard.edu. They do, they do. I didn't know they fish you don't, you, it's, it's quite hard to fish in a busy waterway. They it's fish the, in the broads all the time, and look, that's packed full of... Dude, search for Benzatif on Google Images. I challenge you to find a boat anywhere. <laughs> It's an empty. It's on an empty, Google Maps, they do show boats. It's an empty body of there. water. They do show boats in there. Right. Well, we, look, look, no boats. We, well, <laughs> so so what I'm saying is the landscape. The reason the canal's there is because of the landscape. I'm rustling a piece of paper I have in my hand here. Okay. So uh, I think that's partly. Shall I turn, shall I turn that? Can you turn that off? terrible music off? Um, <laughs> can you turn that terrible music off? <laughs> it's beginning to make me quite tense. <laughs> Now I have a piece of paper in my hand here because yeah. I want to add a little bit about this canal business, yeah, yeah. which is to say, yes, I think you're right. I think that quite a lot of the canals there were originally ditches and, yeah. and for drainage and not for transport. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Yeah. And I do believe that basically Childers is looking around the area and seeing activity yeah. and and deciding it's military build-up when it's probably just people going around their everyday business. Yeah. But it, it suits his paranoia, and it suits the paranoia yeah. that he wants to instill in his readership. Yeah, 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 yeah. It suits him to, the, the, to, to the, make this, it say, you see them there. They're arming the landscape. But there, was, there is also, I found in the Oxford Encyclopedia of Economic History... <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> we've been doing that really this week. That canal development in Germany came later than in France and followed a pattern even more different from the British. So there is a cultural problem. Yeah. But from the 1850s, they do start building navigable canals at quite an amazing rate. Yeah, not right? here though. So they basically, no, but they know all over the country. It's mainly around the Rhine, to be fair, tributaries to the Rhine. Yeah. They're, basically, they doubled the length of navigable rivers and canals Within 50 years, 7,000 kilometres of water is in regular use by 1914. Can I read you something about that? Yeah. I found a news story from a New Zealand newspaper in 1912 called The German Canal System, a Threat to Holland. Yeah, right. 1912. Right. Very good. The German programme of expansion and consolidation seems once more to have come into conflict with Dutch interests, this time in connection with the traffic on the Rhine, perhaps the greatest inland waterway in Europe. Yes. So basically there were no tolls on the Rhine. Oh well, that's there were no tolls on the Rhine uh, since right 1868. There. Yeah, were treaty signed with Prussia and France, and then the story goes: Germany proposes to abrogate this treaty and to impose tolls in the hope of overcoming. This is amazing. In the hope of overcoming the opposition of Holland, the German government threatens to divert the Rhine traffic by means of a canal, which will give direct access from the German Rhine to the North Sea. Yes, this would not be difficult, seeing that there already exists a canal between Emden and the Rhine above Dusseldorf. This canal is known as the Dortmund-Ems Canal. We've talked about that before. Well, that's going to be important. And its extension connects the great industrial and mining centre of Westphalia. So Germany threatens practically to kill the Rhine (laughs) as a channel for traffic (laughs) between Rotterdam and the heart of the continent. So that's how 
freaked out people were about this. Well, there, there's, a, there's a moment on October the third, isn't there, where Davis says, "Let them have Holland." He says it about Germany, yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah, he? he? Says, yeah. "Let them have Holland." Yeah. Holland has been given to understand that if she remains obdurate, Germany is prepared to construct a great new ship canal between Cologne and Emden. A distance of about 200 miles. Yes. The object and effect of such a waterway would be to paralyse the trade of Rotterdam and raise Emden to an importance rivaling that of Hamburg and Bremen. Amazing. Yeah, so it is quite a big deal, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. My right. contention is, I put it to you, my lad, yes. that none of this has got anything to do with East Frisia. Because this isn't the kind of canal building that's going well, on Well, now we, now, we, now we get down to the nub of it. Because you, you said, oh, you haven't seen a boat there. Yeah. And that they're all tiny and they're not really navigable. Yeah. And it's just, a, it's just, he's just making it up. I didn't say any of that. I didn't say any of them were not, weren't I'm putting navigable. words into your mouth. I, what I said was they weren't built to be navigable. They might they might be navigable. Yeah. Each gone round in a canoe. Well, I've done a little bit of research here. <laughs> is that your map? Yeah, it's quite good, isn't it? See, this just makes Schema. my point. What? What? It's so complicated to get from A to B by this canal system. Whereas what canals it's very go very straightforward. Straight. It's very straightforward. <laughs> I don't know what your problem is. All right. So you start at Azens and yeah. you, you try, the Benzatif is wide and long. For, a, for about four miles, so yeah, to yeah. about the point where he yeah. walks, and yeah. then he gives up. Yeah. Admittedly, the, what they then call the Benzatif becomes quite narrow at yeah. that point, but it's a junction. The wide bit becomes the Stuhlleider. Yeah. I don't know what a Leider is. What I know is, ich tut mir leid means I'm sorry, I'm doesn't sorry. it? I'm sorry, yeah. So I don't know why they're calling the, their streams the sorries. <laughs> but they are the sorrows. Anyway, Stuhlleider... You can definitely get a boat down, no problem. Big wide boat. That then takes you onto the Falstertief, which is the main teeth that goes up to Neuharlingerseel. Right. So you can sail, definitely sail from Azens, you know, quite a wide big boat out to Neuharlingerseel, or from Benzerseel to Neuharlingerseel, no problem. No problem. <laughs> now, if instead of going north to Neuharlingerseel, you go south on yeah. the Falstertief, yeah, and then another, and there are plenty of boats on there. I see them on Google Maps. Plenty of them. Yeah. So I don't. This canoeist just wasn't going the right way. He needs to talk to me. <laughs> then there's a junction, another junction. The Falstertief becomes, if you turn west, comes the Falsterleider. Yeah. If you carry on going south, yeah, you're on the Bergschlut. Completely navigable, plenty of boats. But you end up at what, you end up at Wittmund Airport. So you can get to Wittmund from Mazens yeah. on a wide canal. Now the Faustelider, if you take the Faustelider, you actually, funny enough, you do connect, reconnect back up with the Benzatief. Right. So you go around a big circle. You can take a big boat round the Stuhlleider, the Faustelider, Faustelider, end up back on the Benzatief. That then becomes, <laughs> <laughs> it becomes the. I'm just imagining the military advisor to the Prussian government going, we found a way to get a boat from the Emden Wilhelmshaven Canal yeah. to Benzersiel. It's a little bit round. It's about. a little bit round. Hunerschlut, we go to the Hunerschlut, perfectly wide again. Then that becomes the, the Langefeldertief. It connects yeah. into the Langefeldertief, no problem again. Yeah. And that takes you all the way to Ulrich. And Auric is where, basically, connecting into the ems Wilshelmer Canal. So, uh, I, I, I admire your uh, your um, your tenacity. In and they're big, wide routes. waterways. These aren't they? At this point, we're not talking about little little streams. All of the ones I've mentioned, uh, you get a, they're wide. You get they're perfectly wide. You can certainly get a barge down there. You wouldn't get a gunboat down there, would you? I don't 
know. I don't know what the size of gumbo. But I'm saying to you, I'm saying to you, that the infrastructure is a little bit more mature than you're suggesting. Well, it might be now. No, um, I think I think then that the Benzatif w- did just go all the way down to Auric. That they've just changed their names. That that was just one single waterway. That's what I'm saying. Okay, I'm not so sure. And they've just changed them because they they've become privatised. So you, and I agree that nearly in every case, as you go along there, they're then offshoots are these little dikes and yeah. the whole place is used for irrigation yeah. no yeah. question yeah. and it's exactly the process yeah. you're talking about yeah. it's been returned to agrarian purposes yeah. but I, there were, obviously was a point when they were widened for transport and you can connect I see uh, that, around. that is where I disagree with you I don't think they were you don't think they ever were I think they were widened because they had a lot of water going down them Mm, I think there was transport. So, uh, yeah, we, we, I, think transport. Know, anyone, I think Aisins. They need to get agricultural equipment raise, from Whitman to Aisins. It didn't does they? raise an interesting Just, point, doesn't it? Which is to say, did anybody in 1903, when this book was published, yeah, we haven't talked about this. Did anyone in 1903? Did anyone else go? Oh, don't be ridiculous. Yeah. That's the most stupid thing I've ever heard. Yeah, it's just a bunch of farmers. It's just a bunch of farmers. <laughs> It'd be interesting to know, wouldn't it, if, if, what the, if the reaction to the book was, you know, if there was a, you know, a Rear Admiral, uh, blah, 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 who came in and said, I read Mr. Childers' work, and I, I must I must say to you, it is a, a arrant nonsense. There is no possible way of, you know. You said, it's just a bunch of farmers. My conten- I come from Norfolk, I can tell you, it's just a bunch of farmers. My contention is, I put it to you, that Erskine Childers saw some canals from his boat. Yeah. Went a couple of miles inland, saw the Benzatif, went, that's a very wide body of water. Looked at his map and went, ah. Oh. Okay, I, th- I agree with you. I think he probably overstretched. But I think he saw one more thing that he does mention there. Go on. The timber yard and yeah. the barges. Okay. Okay. Because And then he looked at the barges and thought, what do you use a so barge So you think there were actually barges there? Yes, there were barges there. On the Benzatif? Yes. They would have been taking seeds and the produce of the fields down into... Uh, Whitman and Auric, and they would have been bringing back equipment, bricks, really? and stuff. Yeah, and it, and, and, got, and also and brick, you've got evidence. And also, they would have been bringing all the bricks and stuff and building equipment for all the hotels being built on the Frisian Islands for train. all the spas. No, they wouldn't. I don't think that. Not at this time, they no? wouldn't. No. Moving on to the last topic of the day. Yeah, yeah. I want to return to Burma. The, okay, yeah, the yeah. The villain Burma. The place not me. I said last week, I mentioned a few people who could have been real-life role models. Yeah. I overlooked one uh, thing that has been mentioned about him that I, I had forgotten, which yeah. is that he hails from Bremen. Okay. And also that Burma was a submarine engineer. He says, I had already learnt something fresh about Burma, for the seed dropped at Emden Station yesterday had come to life. A submarine engineer I knew him to be before. I now knew that canals were another branch of his labour. So he's associating dodgy old Burma with the canals. Right. Now, what goes on in Bremen? Bremen. Yeah. I, I can know. tell you. Ah, if you're an engineer yeah. and you hail from Bremen, yeah. there's only basically one company you can be of working for in there. And that would be A.G. Weser. A.G. Weser. Yeah. A.G. Weser was one of the major German shipbuilding companies located in Bremen, founded in 1872. And they became rich off building boats for transatlantic transport. Yeah. But they also made torpedo boats for the Imperial Navy in the 1870s, 80s. And they built many small units without propulsion, such as barges, pontoons, floating docks. 
big barge manufacturer yeah, yeah. in Bremen. Yeah, yeah. Mainly, again, for commerce. Yeah, yeah. And non-promotes, for tugs to yeah. go up and down these things. Big, big business. Um, he also calls him a submarine engineer. He calls him a submarine engineer, and this really puzzled me. In 1898. Me. Yes. Well, A.G. Vaser was very, very famously a U-boat manufacturer. Yeah. It was bombed by the Dambuster squad. In yeah, the, yeah. In fact, the first U-boat that they built, uh, which is the first ever one, SMU-1, that was built in Bremen. When, though? 1906, so three years after the publication of Riddle of the Sands. There, there might have been some submarine engineering going on, but not... Yeah. Well, submarine engineering is quite interesting. It's a, it, we, Again, it's another area where there's dramatic changes going yeah, on, yeah. exactly at the time of this book. Yeah. Exactly at the time of this book. Now, the engineer who designed the U-boat, the original one in 1906, was a Spaniard. A Spaniard? Raimondo Lorenzo Dequevili Montjustin. He was a Parisian Spaniard. And the story goes that they, he basically, he worked for the French who designed the Narval. I got too, really into this. Too many Jules Verne novels going on. 1896, the French Army announced an open competition for a new design, 1896. Right. And the novel won, hands down, designed by a Frenchman called Le Boeuf. Now, his assistant was this Spanish guy. Yeah. And then the Spanish guy went, decided he was going to go and work at Visa. Work for the Germans. But on his own designs. And then uh. there was a diplomatic row that he nicked the French military's plans. So you get, like the German rocket designers all going to the States that, after the Second World right, War. Right, that he'd... That he'd and then, then suddenly, the Germans knew how to build submarines, having not known at all. So there's a dodgy engineer in Bremen, submarine, but he's Spanish. <laughs> he's not German. So Childers is writing this book, and how do I make This is, must not, be in the newspaper. How do I make someone look dodgy? Call them a submarine, submarine engineer, engineer. Yeah. Because the other person involved in this, and I think this is... We're getting close to Childers' world. There's a guy called Torsten Nordenfelt, a Swedish inventor. But he actually lived in London. And who was his business partner? I don't know. Maxim. Was it? Maxim of West Norwood. So there's no question that Torsten Nordenfelt used to come around to West Norwood. They fell out, obviously. The Nordenfelt Maxim Company was formed in 1890. But he, he fell out with him. So he basically went off and decided he'd get into submarines and he left Maxim to do machine guns. And he, he set up in Paris. But he took with him a English submarine designer uh, called George Garrett. who was right. actually a priest, weirdly. And they started getting Germans to build to Nordenfelt patented designs submarines for the Ottoman Navy and also for the Russians. And again, those plans then were seen by the German engineers. Yeah. And that also went into the mix of how they'd build a better one. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so you've connected it all up again. Well, Norden, and there's an even closer one. West is North. that the other, the other engineer... goes back to West Norwood. Nordenfelt is the connection here. Because he also worked with another guy called Arthur Leopold Bush. Yeah. Who's another submarine engineer. Who was Northern Irish and went to America. And he teamed up with another guy, and this is the—he's the father of modern submarine engineering. Is a guy called John Philip Holland. Now, this guy really interests me yeah. because he's basically—he's an Irish engineer who developed the first submarine to be formally commissioned by the U.S. Navy, and he also worked for the Royal Navy in yeah. submarine design. Yeah. But get this—he grew up in Dublin. He emigrated in 1873. 
and became a, to the but, states. Yeah, but he was backed by Fenian money. Ooh. He was basically designing Why? because they they just, uh, the Irish nationalists decided that submarine they engineering. Submarine. They wanted a submarine. <laughs> So there's a very good picture of him sticking out. Look, Holland stands in the hatch of his submarine. Yeah. Right. He built a privately built submarine funded by Irish nationalist money, Fenian money, in 1897. Blimey. And Childers, do you not think they... they, they that is they very must interesting. Be, they must have known each that other. That is very interesting. Through his nationalist connections and his American Fenian connections, he must have known this guy, mustn't he? We've got an awful, we've got an awful lot of the words submarine engineer. <laughs> <laughs> it's good though, isn't it? But it means it's obviously on his mind. It's great. It's another, it's another way he's just w- managed to just to drop in and, and weave another bit of paranoia. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. you start thinking about submarines, yeah. you start thinking about Irish nationalists, dodgy Spanish engineers selling secrets to Germans. The Germans. To Germans. It's all around Burma, it's is that stuff, it's, isn't it's it? It's like nuclear threat, isn't it? It's yeah. really interesting. So, just from that, I found that. Very good. So I, I you, win, you win the prize today. <laughs> that was pretty good, wasn't it? That was very good. I enjoyed I that. Enjoyed, I, I love the connection back to uh, to Maxim as well. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. We've left our hero in a barge covered by a sheet of tarpaulin. A large roll of tarpaulin. Looking at looking at these maps. Yes. And then, and then we're going to leave him, aren't we? We are. We'll do that as final reading, but we need to do club, club business. Business. We're going to talk about rowing again. Okay. Because we're going to have to talk about Brian. Brian Lunn. Brian Lunn. Ahoy, Brian. Ahoy, Brian. I said last time that he had sent us a challenge saying he knew some people who could teach us about rowing. Yes. I very mistakenly said they were Olympic standard. <laughs> they're not. They're just national standard. All right. We can keep up. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. But he, is, he then got back to us. He listened to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. And he emailed us and said, there are two options I can pursue, depending on what you want. The first is that a friend is involved in setting up a community rowing club just upstream from the city centre. He's talking about Newcastle here, by the way. Yeah. This is where he's from. Uh, where the river is tidal. It's opposite the Armstrong Works, where huge quantities of armaments, including tanks, were produced until a couple of years ago. So that's quite atmospheric. The club has a skiff. And I'm working for help for heroes, so we could do a sort of charitable row. The second and possibly better option is to row up at Almouth, Anmouth, I think it's Mm. called, and I'll say why, Anmouth. This is in the open sea. It would be in the recently built skiff Pride of Anne. 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 My friend involved with this also owns a B&B in Almouth. Almouth. Anmouth. I only say this because uh, you can get direct to a train to and now Alnwick is Anik. I know that is pronounced yeah. Anik, so I may be that it's Anmuth, and Anmuth in the pride of Anne. Mm. This is much more authentic comparing with the Rots experience, but is in the North Sea, also much more scenic. Well, Rots is in the North Sea, so... Yeah. So I said that was a good idea. You said, you said in May. Can we go it's a bit warmer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Brian says we have an agreement. He's going to speak to Richard and confirm that he's so up we for might this. Be going to Anik, if he remains Anik interested, I'll put the three of you in touch. Oh my word, that'd be quite an adventure. <laughs> so we could go rowing in the North Sea as complete amateurs oh, in a skiff. Oh, Do you fancy that with, in May with whiskey and lunchtime? I think that's a full podcast right there, though. Isn't Absolutely. It? Absolutely. From the hospital afterwards. <laughs> I'm the, up for it. From the oxygen. I'm in tent. training. You're uh, in, another uh, one is. Uh, Pat, who ahoy, Pat, who was calling us out for not putting up links on the website when we mentioned them in the podcast. He says 
he now listen to this. He has done skiffing on the Thames, and he's done a six-kilometer race, right, called the Marathon. He says I was for several years a member of another skiff club, namely the Thames Valley Skiff Club, and he's given us a URL here of tvsc.co.uk. And in 1977, a chap called Mike Lucas and I won the doubles marathon, Blimey. the last race of the season, which, as it happens, gained sufficient points for the club to win the much-coveted. Ormiston Trophy, the Interclub Championship. Yeah. We were briefly heroes. Love it. That's Very like, good. That should be like a motto for the Adventure Club. We can be heroes. <laughs> we were briefly heroes. <laughs> we <good>. were briefly <laughs> heroes. Nice, nice use of the comma there. I yeah. notice, Pat, that you haven't given your time <laughs> for six kilometres. And whether you were drinking whiskey. And whether that six kilometres is nautical kilometres. And also, but we should also point out, you were both rowing. So the point about the Mehmet thing is only one of them. Yes, because he does point out that Oxford and Cambridge boat race is eight-man skiffs. We knew that. We knew that. Yeah. Yeah. So he's pointing that out. Anyway, he says, thank you for mentioning my comments made at Christmas. Time will tell, Lloyd. Which means, are you going to put your maps up that you mentioned last week or not? I will do that today. So thank you for that. So that, tomorrow. So more, there, there's plenty of rowing information. People are into rowing. Yeah, people enjoyed that, didn't they? Yeah. So that's all I've got. A couple of comments on the blog. We had a nice comment from, from Jeff. Oh, uh, Jeff. Jeff Quest, who, having seen our sample of our e-book that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, records we've got a time machine. We've gone back to 1920. Well, that's because we've done a funny thing, haven't we? We've sort of speculative that we found a copy of The Riddle of the Sands yeah. in a bookshop in Lincoln. The yes. way you picked on Lincoln, I thought it was very clever. Well, because there is a there is a very good bookshop, second-hand bookshop in, in Lincoln. Why don't you read that bit out? While passing through the city of Lincoln during one of our walks in progress, we chanced upon a small second-hand bookshop situated on a narrow, steep lane leading up to the cathedral. Neither of us had ever noticed it before, and I suspect we might find it hard to locate it again. Both of us were in need of reading material, since we'd rather exhausted all avenues of conversation over the previous two days. So we asked the shopkeeper a short, stout, ageing man with dyed moustache and glasses sporting a bright waistcoat and a fez, for recommendations. If you are fans of long walks and literary adventure, which I know you are, he seemed to have our number straight away, I can't think of anything else you should have but this. He pressed into our hands a very battered old linen-bound hardback with the spine broken and most of the pages loose. I won't charge you anything for it, since it's in such a state, but it's definitely a book that you were destined to have. Please take it. We're closing now, so sorry. So the book is a yeah. uh, copy of the Riddle of the Sand that's been reorganised. It appeared to be an edition. Date. It appeared to be an edition of the famous spy thriller, the Riddle of the Sands, but broken up, literally torn apart and reorganised not by chapter, as in the usual editions, but by date. And that wasn't all. The book also contained many underlinings and handwritten notes. Alongside these were travel details, steamer timetables from Queenborough, train timetables for Northern in Lower Saxony, and some hand-drawn maps. So we have actually put up scans. Of an old edition, pages from an old edition with lots of handwritten notes on it. Yes. And seemingly owned by somebody called H.G. Yeah, who could that be? Mystery. Mystery. It's a 1920s version. 1920s. He mentions a, he mentions a friend of his with the initials OK. OK. That's the, po- that's the clue, That's the listeners. clue. That's the clue. Let, so go and have a look let, at Riddle of the Sands. Set Sand. that hair running. Riddle of the Sands.net. And, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of that going, going on. on. That's it. So that's it. Shall we, shall we do a reading? Oh, yes. I think it's just the last bit, don't you think? It's the last bit. Um, do you want to do it? I'll do it, yeah. Um, uh, it's just when he's going to sleep. There's a lovely thing about the dreams of the parapets and all that stuff. Which I love. Oh, <coughs> no, no. What about missions for next week? Oh, beg your pardon. Missions for next week, of course. So the next day is... Uh, oh, well, you know, The 25th. So much goes on on the next day. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. 
gone. A brisk walk of six miles brought me ravenously hungry to Dornham. He ends up going to a primitive beer house. Yeah. And he gets in with an ill-looking rascal. And he has to go, basically, on a pub crawl he with goes this on a guy. Pub crawl. He does go on a pub crawl in Dornham. Well, basically, and he goes into a gin shop in the hope of giving him the slip. So we've basically got to design a pub crawl. Pub crawl in Dornham. A pub crawl in Dornham. A pub crawl in Dornham. <laughs> okay. Very good. So what am I going to look at? What I'm interested in, he gets on the train, he makes that, that idea that he will guess that they're all going to meet up at the station, and they do. Yeah. And um, he manages to stand outside the station right next to these three people without them recognising him recognize at him. all. Is that bit. possible? The other thing is, is that possible? Could you turn up next week and me not recognise you? <laughs> no. No. I don't think I could. Well, what I'd quite like to look at was this whole concept of putting soldiers into barges. Yes. Okay. And uh, Where did it happen? And, and did it, it ever happen? Done it? And anyone done it successfully? Well, we do know where they did it. They well, did they it at Alsund. They did it at Alsund. They did. Yeah. They did it on D-Day, obviously, as well. Yeah. But uh, I'll look into that. The other thing that pop- pops out to me, this is a bit of a sneaky thing, I noticed I took a fourth-class ticket to Whitmond. Ooh. A fourth-class ticket. Yes, good. I've never heard of a fourth-class ticket. That's just your thing. Good. So, okay. So, all right. So, I'll look at fourth-class tickets, and I'll also look at soldiers in barges. Soldiers in barges. Yeah. That's a very good thing to be looking <laughs> at. Barges. And now you must read that bit about my dreams. My dreams, okay. You must read about my dreams. <laughs> my dreams that night were of a mighty chain of redoubts and masked batteries, couching perdus among the sand dunes of desolate islets, built coral-like by infinitely slow and secret labour. Fed by the God, this is so paranoid. Mm. Fed by lethal cargoes, boarded lighters, and in charge of stealthy mutes, who one and all bore the likeness of Grim. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Ahoy, Carruthers! <laughs> Ahoy, Davis! <laughs>